The movie It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which I know is a movie that the Real to Real group watched, tells the story of the profile of Mr. Rogers that was created by Esquire magazine back in the 1990s. So it's based on this true story, although it has some fictionalized elements to it. And one of those is the fact that the journalist is renamed Lloyd Vogel in the story. And Lloyd Vogel is a person who is plagued by personal issues that is impacting not only his personal life, but also his professional one as well. And those issues stem from the fact that he has these unresolved feelings, this unresolved anger directed at his father. And his father uh, had an affair while his mom was terminally ill, while Lloyd Vogel's mom was terminally ill. And so he has a lot of pent-up rage about this whole incident. And so he has become somewhat of a cynic because of this. Uh, He has this reputation of being someone who writes unflattering things about the people that he interviews. And so after a a physical altercation with his father at his sister's wedding, the next day Lloyd Vogel is called into his editor's office and where he is given an assignment that he is not the least bit excited about, that he is to go into interview and create a profile about Mr. Rogers. And Lloyd Vogel, the serious investigative journalist that he is, is kind of offended that he is given this assignment someone he sees as a hokey kids show host, someone who plays with puppets for a living. But despite his protests, he has to do this assignment. So he goes back to his desk, he places a phone call, gets a hold of one of Mr. Rogers' assistants, and then in the next scene, he's walking back to his apartment, and just as he's about to enter into his apartment building, his dad is there trying to make amends for what's happened, but Lloyd Vogel doesn't even want to speak to him, goes up to the apartment, and when he gets there, the phone rings, and on the other end, it's Mr. Rogers, played by Tom Hanks. And he says, Lloyd Vogel says to Mr. Rogers, you know, I'd like to set up an interview with, him, with you, but Mr. Rogers says, well, we could do that if you want, but I'm here right now. I'm on the phone with you right now. Why don't we do the interview right here? And so Lloyd Vogel takes the phone, walks out into the hallway into the, like a windowsill balcony, and And Mr. Rogers is talking and saying, when I talk through the TV screen, I try to look into the eyes of the child I'm speaking to, to be fully attentive to their needs, their emotions. He says, you know what the most important thing in the world is to me right now? And Lloyd Vogel is a little confused, and he says, um, no. And and Mr. Rogers says, talking on the phone to Lloyd Vogel. Mr. Rogers had this uncanny and uncommon ability to be fully present to the moment. That he sort of looked like one of the mystics, sages, and saints that we find in all of the world's religions. I know we've had some fun with me coming out here and putting on the, the cardigan and, and the shoes. And even on a today, day like today, the cardigan is still really hot. Um, <laughs> I think we should turn the air on. <laughs> uh, we've had some fun with all of that. But... As with most things with Mr. Rogers, it signified something deeper. I was reading an article this week which was really more of a reflection from somebody about what it meant for Mr. Rogers to come into his neighborhood house to take off his work shoes and his jacket. Uh, Because back in those days, those were the clothes that people wore to work, right? The wool jackets and the dress shoes. To him, it signified that Mr. Rogers was coming home and he was leaving work at the door and he was fully present to the home life, to the children who were there, who he was seeking to speak to. As Mr. Rogers gained popularity, so did the amount of letters that were written to him. 
Uh, one of his former assistants said that Mr. Rogers never threw away a letter that a child wrote to him, that all of them had sacred value. And so this was not just fan mail. These, this wasn't fan mail that people were writing to Mr. Rogers. Like when I was uh, like in third or fourth grade, I wrote fan mail to Michael Jordan. Like he was my idol. I, I, like, I think I wrote to him about my latest statistics, my last Parks League basketball game. Like he was going to be impressed with it. And my hope was that he would see that and be like, this kid needs a pair of Air Jordans <laughs> that my parents wouldn't buy for me. But I'm almost certain that Michael Jordan never saw that letter because what I got back was a form letter and a pamphlet of all of his records and awards and statistics and all of that sort of thing. These weren't the sort of letters that people were writing to Mr. Rogers. These were kids who were dealing with real issues and real things that were affecting them. So a typical letter looks something like, the family dog died yesterday. It was really sad. She'll always be in our hearts. We had a funeral for her. These were kids who were writing to the person who said that their feelings, their emotions, what they were going through mattered to him. And so in the early days of the show, Mr. Rogers and his wife, Joanne, would personally respond to every single letter that came in. That was sometimes 50 to 100 letters every single week. And as the show progressed on, as time went on, Mr. Rogers' assistant started to help him to write those letters, but even still, he oversaw everything that went out, and he always personally signed each letter that came in. Here in the, in the sanctuary, we have some things that remind us of, of being fully present, we, some things from his television show. We have the, the grandfather clock from the neighborhood of make-believe, and, and Daniel Striped Tiger lived in that grandfather clock. And you might notice that there's no hands on it. A reminder to us here gathered together in worship that perhaps this is the one time and place in our busy lives where we don't have to worry so much about the time. That we don't have to worry about how long the preacher's going on. That you'll get home in time to watch the lions <laughs> lose again. Please keep I'll save you from, you can suffer in another way listening to me talk instead of watching the lions lose again, right? Mr. Rogers really does look like one of those mystics, saints, and sages that we find in all of the world's religions. And I remember learning about those mystic saints and sages when I was in seminary. I remember particularly one group known as the Desert Fathers. They were these group, this group of ascetic monks who lived out in the Egyptian wilderness in the third century, and they uh, took vows of poverty, they gave up all their possessions, denied themselves of all the worldly comforts, all so they could be fully present to God out in the Egyptian desert. And I remember learning about them and I'm thinking, well, how great for them that they can get rid of all of their worldly responsibilities and go live out in the desert and just meditate on the mysteries that are beyond all of us. But we all live in the real world, right? We have jobs and responsibilities and families. We have things to take care of. Mystic sages and saints, they, all, they seem sort of removed from us, like they're operating on some different plane. That we all want to be fully present, fully present to God, fully present to ourselves in some ways, fully present to those we love, fully present to those we serve through the ministries of the church. But it is an incredibly difficult thing because we live in the real world, Right? We live in a, a society that is bent on achievement, on constantly having achievement, and, and there's nothing wrong with achievement, but there's always a shadow side to things that are good. 
And in this society that's driven by achievement, we're only as good as the next thing that we do, the next thing that we create. You know, the old adage, what have you done for me lately? And so it's hard to be fully present because we're always thinking about the next thing that we have to do. In the same way, our, our calendars are incredibly busy. Things on our calendars day after day, week after week. And, and so we can't always be present because we're always thinking about what's the next thing that's coming up? What's the next thing I have to do? The next stressful thing that's on my calendar. You know, and the, out of necessity at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of us were able to start working from home. And that was a really important thing, a really necessary thing, and, and, a, and a good thing for us to do to try to mitigate the spread of an illness. But the result of that, as it has continued on, is that home and work life, the line between those two things has become blurred, and in some cases, it has become almost non-existent. Maybe you've had the same experience that I've had, where I've called into some customer service number, and I hear kids playing in the background. Because home is also an office now, that the office is almost everywhere. It's in our cars. We can voice text. We can respond to emails at red lights or in line at Starbucks. We can always be present. The expectation is that we are always present and that we are always available. So it is hard to be fully present in the moment, in any moment that we are given. And so we can look at Mr. Rogers And we can say how great for him that he was able to be fully present to write 50 to 100 letters a week to the children who wrote to him. But we all live in the real world. How could that, how could we even possibly begin to emulate any sort of similarity to that sort of full presence to other people? You know, Lloyd Vogel had a a similar reaction in the movie. At one point in the movie, he meets Joanne Rogers, again, Mr. Rogers' wife. And he says to her, what's it like being married to a living saint? And she says, you know, I don't really like that word. Because when you call him a saint, it makes his life seem inaccessible to all of us. That it's an impossibility. But Fred works at it. He does things like swimming. He reads scripture. He prays for people by name. He takes time to practice being fully present. Perhaps that's why Mr. Rogers had this great love for silence. You know, with kids' shows and children's shows and children's education, sometimes we think that we have to always be entertaining them, that they have to always be doing something. But Mr. Rogers loved silence, and he would incorporate silence into his television show. And so there's one scene where Mr. Rogers has an egg timer. Uh, You remember egg timers? I actually went to go and try to buy one this week, and it's really, it turns out to be really ancient technology. Um, (laughs) He has an egg timer, and he sets it to one minute. He says, you want to know what a minute feels like? Sets a timer and lets everyone sit there for just a minute to be fully present in the moment. And so I don't have an egg timer. I tried, but I have my cell phone. Let's just sit for a minute. What's it like to be fully present for just a minute? No preaching, no music, no prayers, nothing, just to be fully present. Let's sit for a minute. Let's try it.
What was that like for you? Wonderful? Yeah. Others? Calming? Peaceful? Short? Yeah. Long, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Other reactions? You feel closer to God? Yeah, yeah. We have so few moments in our lives where we are able to be fully present like that. I shared with one of the the Bible study groups this past week that to, to be sitting and doing one thing or just to sit and be fully present, it is almost a physically uncomfortable thing for me. Because the way I've constructed my life is to constantly be multitasking. Um, we also don't have, Doug, you mentioned feeling closer to God. We don't have moments in our own worship services where we are simply fully present to God. Uh, we can experience God through other things like the scripture, the message, or the music. But there's often these moving parts. We're always doing something in worship. But how often do we get to just sit and be? It's presence that Jesus is concerned with as we enter into the story from the Gospel of Mark. And we have two major themes that we find in the Gospel of Mark in this story. The first is that Jesus says to his disciples that they have authority over unclean spirits. Uh, what Mark sees the, for the purpose of Jesus arriving in the world is that Jesus has come to confront those forces of evil, the, the demonic forces. And we might say in the modern world that demons and spirits and all that is sort of an outdated idea, a relic of a, of a former time, right? But I think all of us can say, even if we're skeptical about that, that there seems to be something at work in the world that is contrary to God's good intentions and God's purposes in the world. And what Jesus says to his disciples is that they have authority to go and to do the things that he has been doing which is the, the second theme in the Gospel of Mark, and that is the theme of discipleship. That the disciples are called to emulate the life of Jesus. And it's not just the 12 disciples, but it's the church throughout all of time is called to emulate the life of Jesus. And so Jesus says, go and do the things that I have been doing in the world. And I have to imagine that the disciples feel incredibly intimidated by this idea. Even before Christian theology would put all these titles together for who Jesus was, Lord and Savior, and all of these other things, they have been watching Jesus do all of these amazing things, and here Jesus is saying, go and do what I've been doing. And so I imagine the disciples are gathering up all of their stuff, picking up all the extra things they think they need, and, and Jesus says, no, you don't need all of that stuff. You don't need an extra, uh, an extra coat. You don't need money. You don't need all of the stuff that you think you need. All you need to do is to be present to other people, to be my presence in the world. You know, sometimes I think that we get distracted in the Gospels by these miraculous stories of Jesus, these healing stories that, that Jesus somehow by magic makes someone better. But I think that the real miracle of Jesus' life is that he was able to be present to other people, to notice people that no one else noticed. You know, remember he's in the synagogue and he's leading worship and he sees someone who is suffering in body or mind or spirit and he stops the whole worship service to attend to them. That might make some of us uncomfortable, right? If I walked up to someone and attended to your, ask what's going on in your life. 
right? But for them, it was a moment of salvation. Or in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, the culmination of his life and his death and resurrection. But there's a blind beggar calling out, saying, have mercy. I mean, Jesus stops the whole procession to notice that person. Jesus says, you don't need a lot of stuff to carry on what I've been doing. You just need to be fully present. When I was in seminary, I had to, uh, I had to do a, a hospital chaplaincy. And I say I had to because it wasn't something I wanted to do, but it was a requirement. Um, and so it was an 11-week thing. And so the very first day, uh, after we did some onboarding stuff, before they sent us out two by two, just like in the gospel story, right? Two by two to go visit patients. It literally happened like that. Um, just before they sent us out, we had to do this little role-playing exercise with our supervisors. So me and the other student chaplains, we gathered with these two other supervisors. And the supervisors would role-play as a patient who was dealing with an issue. And we had to offer pastoral care in front of all of our other colleagues. It was incredibly uncomfortable. The way I'm describing it does not get to how uncomfortable it was. It was terrifying. Yes, it was terrifying. So my turn comes, and one of the supervisors, she's pretending to be a patient. And so I'm starting to think back to all the theology I've been learning for the previous two years and trying to come up with the perfect thing to say to this person. And as I'm trying to offer pastoral care, the other supervisor, this kind of gruff exterior but heart of gold guy from Brooklyn, is just laughing hysterically at me. And he says, he says to me, you don't need to do anything else but to be present to the people that you visit, that your presence is enough. And I've never forgotten that. Because I thought what they needed from me in that moment, what they needed from me was all of the theology that I've been learning, all of my Karl Barth and my John Calvin and whoever the names that none of you even know, and what they needed from me was all of that. But what they needed from me was simply to be present to them. And this is not a critique of the hospital. I'm married to a nurse, but often when you're in the hospital, the people who come into your room are the people who are there for a reason. There are doctors who are assessing you. There's nurses administering uh, medications. There's physical therapists. They're all there for a reason to do something. But I was there simply to be present, to be one human offering presence to another. There are no special requirements that are needed to be present. That Mr. Rogers was not some saint on another plane, but he showed us that we in our own lives can be present, that Jesus says, you don't need a whole lot of stuff to carry on what I've been doing in the world, that you can simply be present to other people. You know, in a, the, the, the theme, the, the main driver for this sermon, stewardship sermon series is that uh, each one of us has something of value to offer. Some of us might have money, some of us might have special talents and gifts to offer, some of us have extra time, some of us can offer our prayers. We all have different things that we can offer. But what each one of us has to offer is our presence, that we can offer our very selves. That We are still kind of learning what it means to be present, aren't we? Kind of sort of post-pandemic-ish. That presence has meant over the course of this pandemic, phone calls and Zoom meetings, and, and now we're back together in person. But all of those ways are, are ways of being present. That in that time of isolation, we knew how powerful a phone call could be, how moving a, a Zoom meeting could be, that our presence mattered to other people. That 
your presence is unique and unlike anybody else's. And I don't mean that in a saccharine, sappy kind of way, but that the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, is a big, enormous thing, and it has to be channeled in some way. And so it is channeled through you in a way that it is channeled through nobody else. And in those moments where you can be fully present to somebody else, it can mean the world to them. It means the world to this church community that your full presence here, the things that you can offer, you offer what nobody else can. It doesn't take a lot to continue on the ministry of Jesus. All it takes is you and your full presence as the light and the love and the grace of Jesus shines through you in a way that it can shine through nobody else. Thanks be to God. Amen.